creation has no future, and I refuse to believe that I have been given permission to live and I am free. I realize this may be a shock, but God has a purpose for my life is actually a lie. And I believe money and popularity are priorities. In my lifetime, I will tell the people closest to me, I have my priorities straight and I must hold on to my pride. I surrender the idea that my actions will have an everlasting impact. In the future, lukewarm beliefs will be the norm. No longer can it be said that my peers and I care about our faith. It will be evident that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It is foolish to presume that there is hope. But what if we change that? What if we shatter those expectations? What if we flip the script? There is hope. It is foolish to presume that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It will be evident that my peers and I care about our faith. No longer can it be said that lukewarm beliefs will be the norm. In the future, my actions will have an everlasting impact. I surrender the idea that I must hold on to my pride. I have my priorities straight. And in my lifetime, I will tell the people closest to me, money and popularity are priorities. It's actually a lie. And I believe God has a purpose for my life. I realize this may be a shock, but I have been given permission to live. And I am free. And I refuse to believe that my generation has no future. Chills watching that thing, man. That's powerful. That's so good. That's so good. Hey, I need you to, to promise me something. Will you promise me to refuse to believe that your generation has no future? Like, that is the biggest lie that's just said year after year, climate after climate. And I feel like there's something about the way that we even talk, uh, and, I, and I don't mean to like jump into politics or anything, but there's a way we talk about the future, especially in our country, of like, man, the next generation's screwed because we're making poor decisions. And we talk a lot as though, like, man, you guys have no hope, you guys have no future because adults are making bad decisions. And I'm not trying to make any comment on political systems or situations, but I'm saying that rhetoric and, and that word can start to get into your heads, and you can hear that you have no hope because of things that other people are doing. You have no future because other people control your lives. And I want you to hear, no one controls your life but you and the Lord. No one controls your future but you and Jesus. You have volition, you have choices that you can make, you have power over who you're going to be, how you're going to live, what you're going to do, and nothing that I do in my life is going to affect your power. It, things might get more difficult or less difficult depending on all sorts of things. I'm not trying to oversimplify the system, but I need you to, to hear me and believe that you have hope as a generation, that you have something bigger and better than what my generation can accomplish, than what Pastor Gabe's generation can accomplish. We're standing on the shoulders of each other. And this is how the church has advanced through all of human histories, by standing on the shoulders of each other as we progress, as we pursue holiness, as we try to see change happen in our world. And like, man, just look at church history and see how much the church has accomplished from its beginning to now. And imagine what God's going to do through you in the next 40 or 50 years. 
what I'm going to do is not nearly as much as what you're going to do. What you're going to do is not nearly as much as what your grandkids are going to do. We believe the church will be glorious, militant, triumphant. That's our belief. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Hopefully you're there and ready to stand up and receive the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. I'll give you a second. I'll give you a second. All right. If you're, if you're ready, stand up. Well, that will just be our indicator. <laughs> it's all right. Take your time. It's, a, it's, it's hard to flip through the Bible and find these books. Like, I make it look super easy, but that's because I've spent 10 years of my life, like, reading it and knowing where things are, and so I'm, I'm pretty quick at it now. Maybe this is, like, your first time opening a Bible, and it's like, man, where is this stuff? What's going on? That's okay. Like, there's no shame in being slow to find your place. There's no shame in, like, not knowing the Bible super well. The only shame is in not caring enough to do better. All right, let's all stand up and receive the Word of God. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I lost my place. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Man. That's powerful. Like, I love, I love some of you guys were, like, reading it out loud with me. That was cool. Like, that is awesome. Like, one of the best decisions you can make is to, as a pastor's reading scripture, read it with them and, like, let that get into you. Like, something about reading it out loud is, is powerful. The Bible even says, like, we're blessed when we read it out loud. Blessed is the one who hears these words. And I don't know how all that works. I don't know if that's just a, a figure of speech or if that's maybe more literal and spiritual, but... I know that it's powerful to read the Word of God. You want to hear God speak out loud to you? Read the Bible out loud. So powerful. So powerful. All right. So will you imagine with me? Just close your eyes. I, I need you to put yourself in the place of the people reading this letter. You're happy. You're living in the city of Rome. This is a cultural center. It is a metropolis. It's a thriving community. This is like where it's at. 
If there's any place to live in the ancient world, it is Rome. This is everything. You have a thriving business and a happy family. You are living it up. You're part of this vibrant church community. You started following Jesus, and now you've seen incredible things happening. The, the, the community around you is changing. You're seeing God's love transform your neighbors and your family. And then an order comes from the emperor. He feels threatened by this new sect of Christians. He feels threatened by your beliefs because you proclaim that there is a king and his name isn't Caesar. His name is Jesus. So he gives the order. He sends you away from your home kicks you out of the city of Rome, and you now have to go find a new place to live. Now, you don't live in the United States in 2021, where it's really easy just to move to another place, find a new job, and start a new life. You live in the ancient Near East, where your job, your life, everything is tied to the city that you live in. Let yourself just feel a little of that weight and that tension. You are a stranger in a strange land. When you meet your neighbors, when you, when you see people, it is different. You don't know each other. In your whole life, you've known everyone. Your whole life, you've had community, and now you don't. You are in the middle of a new place with new people, new faces, and they are hostile to you because they've heard about these Christians. They've heard about how they don't worship the emperor like they're supposed to. They don't bow down to Rome. They don't feast at the table of Caesar. They feast at the table of King Jesus. So there's tension. You're wandering around. You're looking for a home and a community in the world. So this passage, you can open your eyes now. I just want us to place ourselves in that spot. So this passage makes up the introduction for the next section of this letter. Peter's going on. He, he's just kind of described what it is to follow Jesus. This morning we talked about this hinge passage of uh, talking about who we are, our identity, our purpose, our destiny. And now we've moved into, and here's how you're going to live this thing out. So if I, if I could call this message anything, I'd call it welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. Welcome to the first day of the rest. And, and, and I get that for some of you, this is like day 927 of the rest of your life. You like dedicated your life to Jesus and, and gave him your allegiance a long time ago. But just bear with me for the sake of the analogy. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. This is who you are, and now you're going to live this out. The first thing that Peter wants his listeners to remember, they need to remember who they are. There's just a bunch of remember this, remember this, remember this. Remember who you are. The reason I had us do that exercise together, placing ourselves in the shoes of these believers, is because this is who Peter says that we are too. We are strangers and aliens. We are sojourners and exiles. And so this is the logic for Peter's command. When he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls, he's saying do this because you are sojourners and exiles. What does that mean? Like, does, has anyone used the word sojourner outside of the Bible? I don't think I ever have. And I'm like, I'm like big on big words. And I don't think I've ever used that word outside of the Bible. Soldier boy? Uh, <laughs> yeah, ha, 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 ha. I use the word exile every once in a while, but again, that's not a word we use a lot. What do these words mean? So a sojourner is someone traveling in a foreign land. 
city of someone without a homeland. And, and this word is a loaded word because it ties all the way back to the Old Testament. It ties to the story of Abraham in Genesis. We're told that Abraham is a sojourner. God has made him a promise. He said, there's a land that you need to go to. There's a place I'm going to show you. You need to take up, leave, move there. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you a great nation in this new place. Your kingdom is going to be great and awesome. And now Abraham is on a journey looking for this land, waiting for the Lord to show him where the place is that he's meant to inhabit. Abraham is sojourning on his journey. And Peter says that you are sojourners in the world, that you are on a journey looking for a city. You're looking for a kingdom. You're, you're looking for something, but the place that you are in is not your home. The world that you find yourself in is not your world. You are a sojourner. You are a stranger. You are also an exile. An exile. An exile is someone who's been sent out of their homeland. And so for the original audience, this is a powerful word because they've just been exiled. They've been kicked out of the city of Rome. They've been sent to all corners of the Roman world, and they literally are exiles. And so for them, this is real life. They, they feel this. But Peter says that we too are exiles. And this word again is tied to the Old Testament story. When judgment comes on the nation of Judah, God's people, uh, the, the nation of Babylon takes them over. He, he, and Babylon kicks them out of Jerusalem, kicks them out of Israel, takes all of the uh, all of the artisans, all the rich people, all the craftsmen, all of everyone who's important, anyone who's anyone in that society is exiled. They're kicked out, and they are sent to live in Babylon. And so they are now a people without a nation and without a king in the middle of a foreign land. Now, they maybe are still a nation in that land. They maybe still have a theoretical king. They're certainly a descendant of the king who's still alive, but if he's a king, he doesn't have a kingdom. Peter says, this is who we are as well. As we live in our world, we have been exiled from the world, from the kingdom that we belong in. So now we live in this world as sojourners, as exiles, and we are looking for a kingdom. We are looking for a king, but thank God we found one. We found King Jesus, and we are part of his kingdom as we gather together in the church. This is the kingdom of God made real. It's a small outpost of it. It's not as grand and glorious, as great as it will be one day, but it's a start. The kingdom has begun, and you are a part of it. But you need to remember who you are. Because when you walk in this world, you are not living in the patterns and the systems and the powers of this world. You don't live under the authority of Caesar. You live under the authority of God. You don't live under the authority of your culture. You live under the authority of the word of God. When you try to make decisions for your future, when you decide how to conduct yourselves, you need to remember that you conduct yourselves according to King Jesus and his kingdom, not according to the world and its ways of doing business. If you want to know what that looks like, you can just read the Sermon on the Mount and get all of that. And I'm just going to send you the Sermon on the Mount and so you all like read that thing on a regular basis because that is, you want to see the kingdom of God made real? That's it. That's it right there. For you to remember who you are. You are living under the rule of another ruler right now, but it's King Jesus who gets your ultimate allegiance. You need to remember who you are. You are a new person now that you follow Christ. I want you to get this. The old you is dead. Like, think about who you were before Jesus. And maybe there's a little bit of you that's like wrestling with that. And like, I, I know who I was. I know who I am. Like, I just heard the message this morning, but I feel like I'm caught in the middle. 
And, and I know who I want to be. I know who I am. But, but I keep, keep falling back into those old patterns. Listen, the old you is dead. It's gone. You are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are new. You're not part of this world. You died with Jesus. You need to remember that fact. Hold on to that for the rest of your life. Remember who you are. Second thing you need to remember, you need to remember who you are not. Remember who you are not. Peter moves on. As sojourners and exiles, I urge you, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. You need to remember who you are. This word, passions, is exactly what you think it is. Literally, the bodily lusts. The lusts of the flesh. So you guys getting a little uncomfortable. You're like looking around. You're looking at me. Are you going to go here? Yeah, I am. Because I'd be doing a disservice to the word of God, which speaks with authority, if I didn't talk about this. I'm equally as uncomfortable as you are, but we got to go here. Because this is where the Lord's taken us in his word. However, this is more than just sexual temptation. This is every bodily passion. And you want to know what those bodily passions look like? Well, you can go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1, which we talked about last night. All that malice, all that deceit, all that hypocrisy, all that envy, all that slander. All of the false ways of thinking, living, being, acting, speaking. All of those things are the passions of the flesh, and they're waging war against your soul. I need you to hear this. Bodily passions are not evil. They are good. They're given from God. Even things like anger. You know the Bible tells you to be angry? Book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Be angry, but do not sin. Bodily passions are good. They are created by God. You are created as an emotional, passionate being. And to deny that and to push that to the side is to be less than who God made you to be. However, you live in a fallen system. You live in a fallen, twisted world. And sin has messed everything up. Sin has twisted your passions. Sin has twisted your desires. Sin has twisted your priority for your hopes and your dreams. It's turned those good passions to an evil end. Sin has distorted reality. And so, as this text takes us, although your sex drive is a good passion, it's a great passion. That is awesome. You're going to get married one day, and that is going to be a wonderful passion to have. That is a gift from God. However, sinful lust twists that desire into an instrument of evil. Twists this good thing that God made, that God gave you, and like, I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily blame you here. Like, this is, this is what sin has done. This is your enemy. This is who you are not. You are not the sinful temptation that you feel. As sin tries to twist your desires, as sin tries to twist those passions, that is not who you are, and you need to remember that. And so you need to abstain from them. Abstain from those passions, those sinful passions. Now, keep, keep the good passion. Passion is good. Passion is great. Put your passion on your purpose. We talk about this. But abstain from that sinful passion which wages war against your soul as sin tries to twist and distort and change those passions. And I, I recognize in our world, this is confusing. We have all sorts of voices from all sorts of directions. And we don't always know, you know, what's right, what's wrong. And so abstention is the best wisdom that you can get. 
in, in a world that says, do this, do this, do that, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's right. There's a lot of different opinions, and I'm just going to abstain. And that's okay to say, no, I'm just not going to engage in that thing until I really understand how I can do this in a way that glorifies and honors God. I'm going to abstain, and I'm going to step back because I, I don't understand. This word is apeko, Greek word, hold back, keep it in check. This is like a horse, and you're holding it by the reins. That horse wants to gallop off. You're holding those reins in your hand. You're keeping it back. You're holding on to it. Keep off. Prevent. This is, you're putting up a guardrail and saying, hey, I don't want to go there, and so I'm going to put a guardrail up to keep myself from getting there. So you imagine, like, normally we're driving up to Big Bear, right, for, for this weekend. When you're driving up to Big Bear, you're going to see a lot of guardrails on the side of the road. Those guardrails are there because if you lose control and if you careen, we don't want you to fall off the side of the mountain and kill yourself. We'd rather you just smash into the guardrail and kill your car. Like, that sucks, but, but way better. But Paul said, or sorry, Peter says, you need to abstain from these sinful passions. You need to put up some guardrails and some barriers and keep yourself from running into them. Keep yourself from going too far. Because those things are going to wage war against your soul. They're going to kill you. They're going to destroy you. You are not a part of this world, so don't live like it. Remember who you are not. Remember who you are not. Temptation is the call of the world, but you have a better call. The call that Jesus has for you is better than the temptation of sin, the temptation of lust, the temptation of pride, the temptation of bitterness and malice and anger and envy. The call of Jesus is so much better. The life that Jesus offers is so much better. You need to remember who the enemy is. You need to remember who the enemy is. These things wage war against your soul. Sin is the great enemy of humanity. When you want to talk about your enemy in this world, who are, who, who are you opposing? Who's your opponent? Who's against you? Who's trying to destroy the church and destroy Christians? It's sin and the powers of evil and darkness. That is your great enemy. And you need to remember who that enemy is. And you need to fight that enemy with everything you have in you. Listen, no political power will destroy the kingdom of Jesus. No political power will destroy your soul. No cultural figure, no cultural moment will destroy the church of Jesus Christ or destroy your soul. No amount of oppression, injustice, persecution, racism, violence will destroy the kingdom of Jesus or his church or your soul. The only thing that is waging war against your soul is sin. So you need to remember who that enemy is because it's waging war. It's fighting. You need to fight back. What is your soul? The soul, the core of who you are as a person. Everything about you, sin is opposed against it and wants to destroy. Sin wants to ruin your life, to, to ravage your desires, to turn you into an instrument of evil despite the fact that you were created to do great good in this world. You have this awesome calling from God. You, you have this awesome identity. You have this powerful vocation. You have a great destiny. And what sin wants to do is to interrupt all of that and say, nope, not going to happen. Go this other direction. Drive yourself off a cliff. And you need to know that that is its goal and intention. You need to wage war against it. Too often, we treat sin like a toy. And we want to control it. And, and, okay, I know this is wrong. I know this is a problem. And so... I'm going to make sure I only do it on Fridays. 
make sure I kind of, I'm just going to keep it under control. And as long as I don't do it really often, it'll get bad. But sin is not a toy. Sin is not a toy. We like our pet sins. We like to just hold on to a little bit of jealousy. God, I'll give you everything else in my heart, but I'm going to keep this because I deserve so much more than I have. I like my pet sin of bitterness. I like to just hold on to the things that people say and let them rot down deep in my soul. I like to just hold on to every mean word and negative comment. And I'll give God everything else, but I just want to, I'm going to internalize this. I, I, I can't give this up. And we get this sick addiction to our own pain and bitterness. I'm going to just keep my anger as a pet. I won't, I won't lash out very often, just when I really mean it, but... but Man, I, I don't, I don't want to be the super peaceful person. I don't want to get a tansy and a pushover. I, I want to be able to still fight back. I, I know lust is a big deal. I know it's a problem. We talk about it a lot in church, but it's just so hard. In the moment, it feels so good and so light. Just, just that. I'm just going to keep that. But sin is not a toy. Sin is not something that you can just hold on to and control. Sin is waging war against your soul. It is seeking to destroy you. Jesus says that the devil crouches as a roaring lion seeking who he might devour. James said that, not Jesus. We like these pet sins, but don't downplay the threat. You need to destroy it. You need to make war on this thing. You need to fight this thing. So, like, I'm going to go here because this is where the, the text goes. Like, the amount of research that has gone into what pornography does to your brain, to your mind, and to your soul is astounding. The way that it messes with your biochemical patterns, the way it messes with your psychology, that thing is an enemy, and it's going to destroy you. And I'm not just looking at the guys because statistics tell me that just as many women watch porn as men. And so I'm looking at the whole room here and saying that that thing is going to destroy you. It is a lion going to bite you. It's going to devour you. You need to fight that thing. So how do we do that? How do we do that? You need to talk to someone. You need to confess. Drag that sin into the light. The most powerful weapon that you have as a Christian is the weapon of confession. There's a reason that God puts us into community together. He puts us in a place where we can confess our sins to one another. Where, where does that confession start? Just start with your parents. The most, and I know that is the most awkward conversation to have. Like, you would rather tell anyone but them. But that is the most powerful conversation that you can have. That is the most important and significant conversation you can have because I cannot help you because I see you twice a week. Sometimes we're lucky three or four times, but I don't live with you. Mom and dad, though, they do. Grandma, grandpa, whoever, whoever you're living with, they can actually help you. They can help you put some boundaries up. They can help you actually fight that thing and kill that thing. And that thing is going to destroy you, so fight it. Fight that thing. As Christians, we're committed to approach the topic with grace and care to help you find freedom. We are committed not to approach this with shame, not to approach this with anger, not to approach this with making you feel guilty. That is a difficult thing. And this is the same way that we counsel your parents when they're like, hey, my kid just came to me and they said this thing, how should I respond? We say, hey, respond with grace and love. Try to help them. Don't come at them with shame and guilt. This is just our encouragement. And so I, I encourage you, bring this thing into the light. Drag it into the light. All right. 
That's, that's the awkward bit of the message. But we got to say it because it's what the Bible says. We can't just skip over words because we're uncomfortable with them. We can't just ignore problems that are destroying the American church. Passion also equals anger. Like, that's some passion. That's some rage. Anger will destroy you. If you let sin twist that, if you let sin use that, anger will ruin your life. And gosh, I've heard way too many stories of people who were destroyed by anger. People who destroyed their families because they couldn't control themselves. People who destroyed their marriages. People who destroyed your, your children. And, and some of you guys know just how tragic and awful that is. And that is a lion trying to destroy you. That is an enemy waging war against your soul and you need to kill it. You need to kill it. All the anger just gets generated. You need to get it out somewhere. Give it to Jesus. Abstain from that passion and give it over to the Lord. It's waging war against your soul. If not, it's going to destroy you. Break that cycle of abuse. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, these are things that want to destroy you. They're a result of sin, and, and I know this is a difficult, sensitive topic because these are medical issues, and a lot of times they're from biochemical responses that you can't necessarily control. Nonetheless, they're a result of sin in our world. That, that brokenness comes from sin, and you can't fight that thing on your own. You can't fight the monster of depression on your own in the dark. It only makes it worse. You can't fight the beast of anxiety on your own. You need the power of Jesus. You need to bring that into the light. You need to confess that. And I, again, that is, it's shameful. It, it feels shameful to say, man, I'm just, I'm super depressed. And I don't know how to deal with it. And I just, I want to hurt myself. And I thought about not being here. But you need to drag that thing into the light. Because that thing wants to destroy you. And it's going to destroy you if you don't let it. Maybe, maybe it won't take you all the way, thank God. But it will destroy your relationships. It'll destroy your own sense of security. It, it seeks to destroy everything it can. All forms of sickness, really, need to find healing. Need to find hope. In all of these things, don't get your value or your peace from temporary things. That, that's what all of this is, ultimately. There's a hole in my heart that I need to get filled. There, there is... There's a desire that I have. There's a passion that I feel. There's a loneliness that exists. And I need to fill that, and I don't know how. And sin has an answer, but it's the wrong answer. The answer that sin supplies is going to destroy you and ruin your life. Instead, come to Jesus and let him satisfy all of those desires and longings. Let him have all of that. Remember who that enemy is. You are meant to be someone, so don't let sin destroy that person you are meant to be. So these sins wage war on your soul. They can't destroy you, but they will wage war. The, the, these sins, you're in Jesus, right? We talked about this this morning. God comes with mercy and not wrath. But these, these things, these, these passions, they're waging war, and they, they want to keep you back from living out in all that God has for you to be, from, from living out the fullness of your calling, the fullness of your identity, these things are going to hold you back. 
They, they won't destroy your identity. They won't destroy your vocation. It's probably seek one more precisely here. But they will hold you back. And they, and they will wage war and make it a whole lot harder to live out the things that you were called to do. It's going to be really hard to have a healthy marriage when lust is always crawling at the door. It's going to be really hard to have healthy friendships when you can't help but gossip about everyone that you know. It's going to be really hard to have healthy relationships when you're just so consumed with anger and bitterness. It's going to be really hard. Sin is waging war. So what's the answer? Make war on sin. Make war on sin. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are in a war. Whether you recognize it or not, and I, I pray to God that you would open your eyes and see there is a war, there's a battle raging for your lives. So do whatever it takes to achieve victory. Start with confession. Start with, we already talked about this a little bit. Start with confession. Drag that sin into the light. Have people in your life that you can be real with and, and be fully present, be fully known, be fully loved. Listen, you can't have that relationship with everyone, and it's probably not a wise idea to have that relationship with everyone. Pro probably not wise during speed friending to confess your porn addiction. Like, that's not a good idea. And so I want to encourage you, because I know it can be addicting to, like, have friendship, and it can be addicting to, like, be in relationship, and you just want to get everything out there because it feels good to confess. But I want to urge a little bit of caution before you confess to the wrong people before you confess more than you maybe should. There is such a thing as too much confession, but find those relationships where it is okay to be fully vulnerable, where there's a level of spiritual maturity, where there's a level of depth that I can really bring this thing out into the light, and I know that I'll find grace, that I'll find help, that I'll find hope. So confess that stuff. Have people in your life you can be real with. And if your parents are believers, that is a great place to start. We believe firmly at MCA that the most significant spiritual leader in your life is your mom and your dad, your dad and your mom. More than myself, Pastor Gabe, Pastor Dave, your dad and your mom are the most significant and important spiritual leader in your life. And so they are the person that you go to first and foremost. Not because we don't want to hear it. God, I, I love these conversations. I love getting your texts. I love taking your phone calls. I, I, lo I love talking through stuff. But I only see you twice a week. Mom and dad see you every day. And if you want to see some real change, if you want to see some real victory, you start talking that with mom and dad, and they can help you. They can do some powerful things. And if your parents aren't believers, like, even then, there's maybe some room to say, hey, dad, mom, I just want to be real a second about some stuff I'm facing going through, like, can, can you help me out, give me advice, give me ideas? Your parents have a powerful role in your life, and, and if they don't, they should, and so invite them to have a little bit more of, of, of that. Open that door and, and, and invite it in. Confession, confession, fight, fight. You need to confess, you need to fight, you need to put up some boundaries. You need to make some choices that set you up for success. The battle against sin does not begin in the moment of temptation. It begins in the moments leading up to that moment. It begins in all the choices leading up to that choice. If you get to the spot where you have to say no or else you're going to fall into sin, 99% of the time, you're not going to be able to say no. That's just how sin works. It is addicting. It, if it wasn't tempting, it wouldn't be temptation. So you need to make choices in the choices leading up. You, you can use some wisdom to say, if I, if I say yes to this, you give a mouse a cookie, right? You, you've read the kid's book. Like, you, you know how that goes. And it's the same way when you're fighting sin. 
the same with your sin. You, know, you can see where those choices are going to lead. So you need to make choices now to protect you for 20 years down the road. You need to make some choices. So I'm going to fight this sin now because in 20 years, this thing's going to be a dragon. And I am, yeah, heck of a time to slay that thing. I'd much rather fight it at 15. Much rather fight it at 11. Much rather fight it at 18. Way easier fight before you give that dragon time to grow up and mature. Old kid's song, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. Be careful little feet where you go. It's cute, but it's true. You need to fight. And this is how you fight. You make some good choices. And you watch out. Where am I going to walk? What am I going to look at? Who's going to be with me? Am, am I going to have my phone in my bedroom late at night? And this, I encourage you this. Turn in your phone at 9 o'clock. After 9 o'clock, you don't need to be texting no one anyway. You got, you got better things to do. You can go to sleep. You can do some of that homework that you haven't been doing. Like, that's a, that's a way to fight. That's a way to put up a boundary. Remember your weapons. Remember your weapons. You can't kill sin on your own. And if you try, you're going to fail every single time. It's only through the power of the Spirit of God that you can have any hope of victory against the power of sin. So remember what your weapons are. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 4, tells us that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Remember your weapons. Your weapons are, are, are not of the flesh. They're of the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God to help you beat back the power of sin. You, you, need, the, you need the weapon of prayer. To, to go to the Lord and wrestle with Him. Lord, help me with this anger because I cannot get rid of it no, how, no matter how hard I try. Lord, I am so bitter and I hate this person so much and I cannot forgive them. I can't. You know what they did, God, and I cannot let that go. You need to take that to the Lord in prayer. That is a weapon, and that is powerful, and something actually happens when you pray. You need to open up God's word. Let its truth saturate your mind and your heart. This is powerful. Something happens when you read this word. Something's happened in us as we've stood up and read this thing together. This is a powerful weapon. So use it. Wage war. And then you have the ultimate weapon. Jesus himself is with you in every moment of every day. So rely on the power of Jesus not the power of you. You're not going to beat sin on your own. And you've been trying for so long, you should know this by now. You keep failing. Bring Jesus into it. And yeah, you're still going to fail. It's still going to be hard. It's still a battle. This thing's waging war. It's not just a walk in the park. It's not like I, I'm going to pray a prayer and everything's going to go away. It's like Jesus is going to come and then all my problems are going to disappear. That might happen by the grace of God. I, I pray that it happens for every person in this room. But more likely than not, you're still going to be in a fight. You're still going to be in a battle, and you need to keep fighting that thing. But fight that with someone who can actually win that battle. Last thing you want to make war on sin, you need to know that failure isn't final. Failure isn't final. When you fail, that's not the end of your story. Failure is an opportunity for you to get back up and make the next right choice. Do the next thing. Yeah, I failed, and hate what I just did. I can't believe I did that. That was stupid. All right. It's not a cheat day. It's not like, oh, well, did one sin. Might as well do 20 more. Try again tomorrow, God. It's not a cheat day. You, there, there's no spiritual cheat days. But failure isn't final. You stop. You say, okay, 
It's a reset button. It's a reset button. I'm hitting the reset. I'm starting over, and I'm making a good choice from here on out. Maybe you hit that reset button 20 times today, but keep hitting it. Keep making those right choices. Maybe you get to next week, and you're only hitting it 15 times a day. Your growth is way slower and way more subtle than you'd like, but it's there. And in 20 years down the road, if you fight this thing, if, if you work at killing this sin, you bring it to the Lord, you invite the word of God, you'll have seen some growth. You'll have seen some change. You'll be able to look back and say, God, I'm not the person I used to be. Thank you. Or you could spend the next 20 years right where you're at with no growth, with no change, with no difference. Failure is not final. Make war on this thing. Make war on this thing. You and a good weapon, you need to remember your purpose. This is a weapon. Remember your purpose. When you know what you're called to do, that can be a source of motivation to help you make those right decisions. When you know, man, I know I've got to be this person. God's called me to do this thing. God's made me into this man, this woman. Now I have this purpose. Now I'm going to live up to it. Peter says in verse chapter 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, despite the hostility of this world, despite the brokenness of sin, despite all of the ways that it twists and ruins our lives and God's good creation, we still have a part to play in shaping its future. We still have a a part to play in bringing about the restoration of the kingdom of God. See, the good news of what God has done through Jesus is that he's brought in the solution to the problem of sin. That Jesus has beat back the problem of death, the problem of darkness, the problem of evil. That we do not live in a world where sin can completely reign and dominate. There's some power there. There's some stuff there. But there's an alternate power fighting against and overcoming that power of sin. And you have a role to play in making that happen. You have a role to play in pushing back darkness and expanding the kingdom of God in your life, in your family, in your community. So Christians don't just sit back and wait for Jesus to show up and, and rescue us. But we get our hands and we get, we get our hands dirty. And we jump into the process of ending sin, ruining sin's plans, ruining Satan's day. We bring about the restoration and the recreation of the garden. In verse 10, Peter told us that we are a kingdom of priests. Ari, you can come here. We're a kingdom of priests. I said we'd talk more about this later because it fits better with this section. So that's part of our purpose is what does a priest do? A priest is someone who calls people to God. A priest is the conduit between God and humans. When you wanted to meet with God, you'd go to the priest and the priest would be the presence of God for you. And as you spoke to that priest, it was if God was speaking to you himself. You wanted to confess sin, you went to the priest and you did that. You want to make a sacrifice, you go to the priest, you do it there. Well, now we are a kingdom of priests. And so as a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. You have a responsibility to play in this world as a priest. You are a conduit between God and humanity in every situation you walk into. Everywhere you go, you bring the presence of God with you. And you are a walking opportunity for Jesus to change your life. You are a walking opportunity for God to work a miracle. 
because you're a priest. So as a priest, your call is to call your friends, to call your neighbors, your parents, your acquaintances, the whole world to obedience, allegiance to King Jesus. In the same way, you represent Jesus to the people in your life. So how are you doing on that? How's your priesthood going? Are, are you representing Jesus well to your friends, to your family? are the embodied representation of God to people in your life. There's this great story that I think really captures it. It's from the actor Alec Guinness. I don't know if you guys know who that is. He's really old now. He was old when I was younger. He's way old now. Alec Guinness is the guy who played Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars movies. Not Ewan McGregor, but way old dude. Ben Kenobi. Legendary actor. Great guy. Converted to the faith, came to Christianity after he had this experience while filming Father Brown, a murder mystery thing where he, he played the role of a priest. They were filming in Burgundy, France. And so he's there, and I'll just, I'll read this, I'll read this story. His autobiography, he writes, a room had been put at my disposal in the little station hotel three kilometers away. By the time dusk fell, I was bored, and dressed in my priestly black, I climbed the gritty, winding in the square, children were squealing like mock battles with sticks for swords and dustbins with lids for shields. And in a cafe, Peter Finch, Bernard Lee, and Robert Carner were sampling their first Pernod Vino. I joined them for a modest cur, then discovering I wouldn't be needed for at least four hours, turned back towards the station. By now, it was dark. I hadn't gone far when I heard scampering footsteps and a piping voice calling, Mon Père, my father. My hand was seized by a boy of seven or eight who clutched it tightly, swung it, and kept up a non-stop rattle. He was full of excitement, hops, skips, and jumps, but never let go of me. I didn't dare speak in case my excruciating French should scare him. Although I was a total stranger, he obviously took me for a priest, so to be trusted. Suddenly, with a monsieur mon père, he hurried sideways, sort of bowed, and disappeared through a hole in the had a happy, reassuring walk home, and I was left with an odd, calm sense of elation. Continuing my walk, I reflected that a church which could inspire such confidence in a child, making its priests, even when unknown, so easily approachable, could not be as scheming and creepy as so often made out. I began to shake off my long-taught, long-absorbed prejudices. After this story, Alec Guinness came to faith, gave allegiance to Jesus, I think this is such a powerful story of who we are as representatives of Jesus. The Alec Guinness dressed this priest and this young boy could just come and talk to him with, with total trust. Because the priest, he represents something. He represents a caring figure. He represents someone who is available. He represents someone who is a holy man. He represents someone who is, is not a threat or a harm. He represents Jesus himself. And so just as this young boy would grab the hand of Jesus, he'd grab the hand of this priest. And so when I tell you that you are the only Jesus that most people will see, this is what I have in mind. That people would be able to come to you with this sense of openness, this sense of trust, because you are embodying the character and the nature of Jesus. You are 
embodying the, the personality of Jesus in your interactions, the way you treat other people. You're treating people the way that, that Jesus treats people. The way that you live as a Christian matters. It matters. So verse 12 tells us that instead of giving in to these bodily passions, Christians are to have a noble lifestyle of honorable conduct. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so you need to keep your conduct honorable. This is an active word. This is a word that means to aggressively like pursue it and protect it. To, to watch over it, to watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, we're told in the story of Cain and Abel. Sin's crouching at your door, and it wants to devour you. You must have mastery over it, so keep your conduct honorable. Be on your guard, stay vigilant, don't get lazy. You need to remember your target. Remember your target. You need to keep your conduct among the Gentiles. This, this is the Greek word for the nations non-Jewish people. This is how Peter refers to non-Christians. When you're with the nations, watch how you act carefully. Don't just go along with what the, their way of doing things. Don't just go along with the crowd. Just go along with the flow. But you need to watch and say, hey, I'm a representative of Jesus, and so I need to do what Jesus would do in the middle of a bad situation. And I need to step back and, and go the other direction. Lead some people in the other direction. Watch your walk, especially around non-Christians. And I want to say this shouldn't matter because you should walk the same way, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian. But like, if we're honest and we're real, we both know that we're not perfect 100% of the time. And, and we need to always be vigilant, always be careful. And so when we're around a non-Christian, when we're around someone who doesn't follow Jesus, we need to be extra careful because we're leading them somewhere. And I sure hope it's to Jesus. I sure hope that if someone follows my life, they would end up at Jesus. If someone modeled their life after mine, they would look a little bit more like Jesus. There's plenty of people out there looking for an excuse to hate Christians because they met a bad one. Don't be their excuse. This is the result of our honorable conduct. The first thing is we won't be slandered when we're spoken against as evildoers. If we keep our conduct honorable, we won't be slandered. And so keep your conduct honorable. Make sure that when they accuse you of being an evildoer, it's a lie. Make sure that, that when you're accused of being a hypocrite, it's a false accusation. Make sure that when, when someone says, man, you're just a rotten, dirty, terrible piece of crap, make sure that's not true. Instead, keep your conduct honorable so that they may see your good works and glorify God. Live on mission. This is the goal. Non-believers giving their life, their allegiance to King Jesus. And in every interaction that I have with a person, I'm hoping to see God save them. I'm hoping to see God do something in your life. I'm hoping to see God work a miracle. Listen, you do not save people. God does. So the pressure's on, but the pressure's off. Your responsibility is not to somehow convince them through a lofty argument or, or, or to somehow convict them of their sin. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. All you're going to do is you're going to keep your conduct honorable. You're going to live the way Jesus does, and you're going to be real open and honest about your life, about the way that Jesus has changed you, the way that, that, that Jesus has helped you become this, this different sort of person. Be the best representative of King Jesus that you can be in 
trust the Lord with the rest. Peter finishes this section by paralleling the Sermon on the Mount. I swear this dude never had an original thought. He just copied Jesus the whole time. It's probably pretty good. It can do a whole lot worse. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. This is what he's quoting. And would you stand as we receive the word of God? sermon ever written says you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven this is what peter quotes jesus says hey if you're going to do nothing else remember this call live as light to the world. So it says, I close, I'll urge you, don't hide your light. See, I, I always thought that I had to go out of my way to do this. Like, for whatever reason, when, when I heard this guy, I was like, well, I have to go out of my way and find a homeless man and give him $5. I have to, like, go out of my way and find a crying person in my class and, like, give him a hug and tell him Jesus loves them. And, and yeah, if, if you want to go out of your way, if the Lord's calling you to do that, like, all power to you. Like, totally. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Nothing against I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But it's actually a whole lot simpler than that. Just wherever God has placed you, let your light shine in that place. Like, we, we talked about this this morning. It's not an accident that you're in the family you're in, that you're in the school you're in, that you're in the neighborhood you're in, that you're in the city and the church you're in. And so where God has placed you, shine that light. Be who God has called you to be. Live like Jesus and see what God will do through that light, drawing people to himself. Step out of darkness. Fight back the sin that wants to wage war against your soul. That light is shined in the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it. So live as light in the middle of a dark world. And not just you. And I've kind of stepped around this the whole weekend but every time it says you in this passage, it's saying more like y'all, all y'all. When we come together, this is who we are. And like, what's true of us as a group is true of you as an individual. And so you are personally chosen and loved by God. But at the same time, when we come together, that just magnifies, it's so much more powerful. If we would come together and live as the light that God has called us to be, as all of Trademark, as all of MCA, as all of the churches in Moreno Valley, what would God do with our world? What would God do in your family? What would God do in, in, in your relationships? What would God do in, in your school, if every believer in Jesus in your school is to really live on mission and live this out? Imagine what could happen. We is so much greater than me. We is so much greater than me. And so I'm gonna invite you to pray as you do, there's three places that I want to direct you. Of course, like, the Lord has spoken through his word tonight. And so you need to respond to the Lord has spoken to you. So my three things here may not be the things that God has spoken to you, but you need to come and respond to the word of God because God spoke. But three things that I would direct you if you're like, man, how, how can I pray? What, what might be a good way to respond to this? You can pray, God, would you light me up? I'm called to be light, so would would you light me up? Would you make me more passionate for you and for your word? 
Would you help me to be better at living for you and representing you? Would you help me to remember who I am? Help me to remember all that I'm called to do? God, light me up. You, you could also pray this prayer. Who can I represent Jesus to? God's placed me in a place. I get that. I'm a light. I get that. Check, check. All right, how can I do this? Ask God for three names of people in your life. And, and don't pick like a celebrity that you see on TV. Don't pick Pastor Dave. Like, yeah, he's in your life, but you don't see him very often. Pick easy names. A friend, family member, someone at school. Ask God, give me three people that I can pray for, that I can be light to. Pray for those people, like up here. Pray for them. Ask God to save them. What can't he do? He saved you. That was a heck of a work. So who's to say he can't save your friends? Who's to say he can't save your mom? Who's to say he can't save your sibling? Ask God to break your heart for them, that they would be so heavy on your heart that you care so deeply about their lives and what God wants to do in them. Make it a point to talk to that person. Invite them to trademark. Invite them to church. That's a way you can pray. And the last way that, that I invite you to pray, God, make me bold. Like, I'm the light. I know who I need to talk to, but God, would you help me to step out of that box and actually do it? Would you help me to, to get comfortable being uncomfortable? Would you help me to step past my inhibitions? Would you give me the courage just to be the person that you've called me to be? Would you help me to hear your voice? pray for us, and I'm going to invite you to come, pray, respond to the word of God. Lord Jesus, our King, our God, our Master, we submit ourselves to your word. Thank you that it convicts us, that it calls us to a better life, that there is more for us than where we are right now. So I pray to live into that, live into the fullness of the calling that you have on our lives, live into all that you want to do in us, through us. Pray you come in power this evening, impact these students' lives in powerful, mighty ways. Would you convict us, would you give us the courage to speak out and do that? Would you help us to be